back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off, off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Well, we are into, I don't know, I lost count um, of quarantine this week, <laughs> and I think the grocery store shelves are still bare or intermittent, depending on what time. Uh, I know we ran to the grocery store. It was either Thursday or Friday of this week, right before Easter kicked off, and noticed the baking section was still bare and the eggs were, were coming in. So we thought that would be a good time to talk this week about kind of consumer buying habits and maybe the supply chain issues with meeting the demand of the consumer and everything being in the grocery stores or people having to actually go buy it rather than eating out for holidays like this. And we are super excited to have a guest this week and I will let Catherine introduce her. Yeah, so we are very, very excited and blessed to have Jeanette Barnard um, with us this week. And uh, Jeanette comes to us um, two ways. Um, she's a friend of a family friend of Valine's and also I happened to meet her when I was a sophomore in high school when she was a national FFA officer. So really cool to reconnect. Um, we're excited to have her here today to talk about consumer, um, you know, consumer habits and, and behavior during, during a pandemic like we've been seeing these last, last month or so. So Jeanette, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and your background and we'll start rolling. Sounds great. Well, it's great to be here. So thank you guys for having me on. Um, by way of introduction, I'll, I'll give the short version here. Um, so I grew up on a farm in Southeast Arizona. Um, my, my family uh, raises cattle and grows chili peppers and uh, fun things such as that here in Southeast Arizona. So I uh, got a degree in ag economics and then joined Elanco Animal Health, um, worked around the poultry industry for about five years uh, before going to business school and then interning with Cargill and McDonald's and their global supply chain team, um, which really, that was really kind of my first exposure to how supply chains work and the, the, the true scale of what we're talking about here in the livestock industry that we'll come back to in a moment, uh, or from a meat perspective specifically. And then, uh, then I got into, after business school, I really got into more of the technology side of things. So uh, launched my own startup, uh, working with poultry integrators and their customers uh, from a buying perspective, and then uh, joined another startup that was really working with processors of all types that were looking to make decisions based on the commodity market. So whether that was buying raw material inputs or uh, making decisions about selling finished goods, uh, we were doing commodity price forecasting. And so Again, working with a lot of uh, meat processors during that time, a lot of exposure to, you know, how, how supply chains are structured and what some of the implications of that can be. Very cool. Well, thank you again for joining us and um, we'll just roll right into it. So, um, Valine and I have been fascinated while we went going to the grocery store during a pandemic and quarantining to see that um, a lot of the shelves for meat for for real true protein um, and dairy, the dairy cases have been empty often, which is unsettling for us to see as Americans. It's not something we're used to. But to to compare it to um, you know plant based alternatives in both sectors still being on the shelves, and you know it, it's just an interesting thing to start thinking about um, about that kind of consumer behavior. Like what's going on here because you know, leading up to this pandemic, there's, there's been food fights for years, you know, um, with industries and sectors against each other. And the plant-based, for me, it seems like we've been fighting the plant-based market a lot lately. And that's, 
that's our biggest concern is the Impossible Burger, the Burger King's Whoppers that are changing, and, and those are still on the shelves. So do you have any insights into why this is happening? What's the deal here? Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. I have been telling people that I think what we have seen from consumer behavior during the pandemic, um, consumers are revealing to us their, their deepest, truest preferences through their buying behavior in a way that we would never uncover through a, through a market research survey of some sort. Right. So think about it. Like we're in these, everybody keeps using the word unprecedented, but it's real, right? We're in these unprecedented times. There's all of this uncertainty. There's a run on toilet paper. What's there going to be a run on next, right? And so at the beginning of this whole pandemic, um, you know, as people are starting to realize, hey, we're probably going to be at home for a little while. We probably got to stock up so we don't have to go out. The thing that everybody wants is animal protein, right? It's meat, it's milk, it's eggs. And I think what we've seen from both a, um, a taste and a cost perspective. Um, we've seen people, you know, really choosing those, um, for lack of a better word, real animal proteins, um, as opposed to some of the alternatives. That being said, I did have a conversation earlier this week with some friends who, you know, were kind of hypothesizing about, Hey, we're in the animal protein world. We've got some supply chain issues when things don't work exactly as they should, right? And we have a lot, there are a lot of steps in the value chain that quickly are impacted and the results of those impacts can last for a while. Whereas perhaps with plant-based protein, they have an advantage on us there um, in terms of how they can scale up and scale down production. And to be honest, this was a friend's hypothesis. I don't know enough about the plant-based meat supply chain to know whether or not that's accurate or not, but um, it's, a, it's at least an interesting hypothesis to, to chase out at some point. So that's something I'm looking to learn more about. But, um, but back to your original question, I mean, I think it's for the same reasons that we've, um, you know, we've seen a lot of companies talk about how um, buying of comfort foods like, you know, Oreos or Cheetos or pick your unhealthy snack food, right? right. People are buying more of those. It's, you know, it's, it, it, it's a lot of that element of, I want to know that I have access to, to, to food and to protein um, that's going to be the center of the meal uh, for my family during this uncertain time. Um, and so I, th I think we've seen that uh, consistently everywhere. Well, going back to your plant-based and logistics point and hypothesis, I think that's really fascinating and kind of points back to our episode a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about hope through all this. And I think we can take a little bit of a nugget that this is a, unfortunately, but let's use it, a big learning opportunity for our industry to see where we falter and, and how do we move forward through something like this. I think it's, you know, only where the hitches in our supply chain might be, but to see where the hitches in our marketing um, might be, you know, you talked about values and consumers are really, really buying based on their deep, deep down values that we wouldn't get to see otherwise. So just, this is like a, a stitch in time for agriculture where we can take this and run with it, um, you know, if we've got the guts to. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting though. So I've spent way too much time on Twitter uh, in the last month, <laughs> as I assume a lot of people have. Um, but I've seen some people talking about, you use the phrase glitches in our supply chains. I've seen people talking about, in a negative sense, calling our supply chains inflexible, which 
just to back up, I mean, they, they are, <laughs> let's just acknowledge that they are right. The reason we're dumping milk is because, you know, we have specialized processing plants for bottling facilities to go to put milk in a jug to go to retail. And we have specialized plants to turn that, um, those dairy products into, you know, tubs of sour cream to go to restaurants. And, the equipment in those plants are not easily interchangeable. Um, a lot of times it's entirely different companies that are both buying and processing and distributing. So it's not, I, I've, I've had a lot of friends on Facebook and on Twitter, you know, want to have these conversations about why are we dumping milk when people are lined up at food banks? There's about a thousand steps in between there that explain why we're not. Part, partly it's explained by commodity markets, partly it's explained by supply chain structure, right? And going back to kind of this idea of an inflexible supply chain in, in the midst of a pandemic, when, you know, typically across all of our animal proteins, we're roughly split. This is really rough numbers, but roughly 50, 50 of retail versus food service demand. And all of a sudden we're shifting to like 85% retail, 15% food service. It's a massive shift for these huge supply chains. Right. And again, that word unprecedented, we've never had a shift like that overnight. Never. And so, yes, it appears that our supply chains are inflexible now in the midst of this pandemic, but the, the, the characteristics of these supply chains that are causing us to call them inflexible in a time of crisis and demand shift in the good times, and maybe good times is the wrong word, in the normal times, those same characteristics of the supply chains, we would say makes our supply chain highly efficient. It makes it low cost. It makes it, um, you know, all, all, all of these, all of these good aspects and results of specialization um, of different assets within the supply chain. So it's just interesting that, um, do I think that this is going to end up with a lot of companies maybe trying to take a more diversified, diversified approach to their, their own sales portfolio of retail versus food service customers, um, maybe trying to build in some level of flexibility into plants. Yes, I, I, I think all of that is likely. But at the same time, um, I just think it's important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that um, you know, if we were to move to, to a, a situation where supply chains could react in, immediately to um, significant changes like that, there would be a cost associated with that. And the cost would be true cost in the form of, of higher consumer prices. So, Sure. I think those are all points very well made and very well taken and um, timely too, because, you know, it's easy to be outraged on Twitter or Facebook or wherever and say, wow, we're dumping milk and the food banks are hungry. You know, that's it's a very simplistic view of things. So we appreciate your, your in-depth analysis <laughs> very much. Well, and feeding off that a little bit, you know, we, we see, do you, well, I guess, do you see because of people freaking out because milk's being dumped, are you seeing an increase of consumers hoarding goods too because they're afraid that they're not going to be able to get that product that's being thrown out essentially because they don't know the whole, the whole story. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a specific answer to that. Anecdotally, I would say number one, I think every major news media outlet has covered some version of a story that says there is enough food in America. We just are going to have some logistics challenges. You know, I mean, I think that's the essence of every one of those stories that's run. So that's positive. Um, the second thing is, especially on milk, it seems like, well, let me back up and say this on meat and eggs. It seems like 
stores are getting, they're getting a handle on um, kind of a twofold situation. The stores are getting a handle on, um, you know, stocking, stocking the, their stores better. But then also I think as consumers have kind of settled into their quarantine shopping routines, it's gotten a little bit less chaotic than it was those first couple of weeks. So like we've seen retail demand come down even from what it was the first couple of weeks um, as that's kind of leveled out. So, um, but that being said, there's also, I think for most of us still going to the grocery store, we'll see some sort of a sign saying you can only take two gallons of milk or four gallons of milk or whatever it is. So there's still some limitations around that. But I think that's not a reflection of, not a reflection of the supply chain. That's a reflection of, um, you know, what that store has access to and their ability to stock it at, at, at what rate they can stock um, the milk coming in, since that obviously has proven to be another, another bottleneck is just the manpower in grocery stores getting the shelves restocked. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Labor is something we haven't even scratched the surface on, on in our <laughs> podcast talking about the pandemic. That's a whole nother, whole nother kettle of fish. Well, and you just, I saw yes, I think it was yesterday, JBS on the milk, on the meat packing side is temporarily closing for two weeks. While there's articles that lead you to believe it's a definitely, it's two weeks or less or 10 days. So they can get their, their COVID situation in control and get all the necessary equipment. But that's causing panic and stress too, at least in the markets. Do you, are we also seeing that on the shelves or do we have enough supply still being able to be processed elsewhere? Yeah, I don't think we're seeing that on shelves yet, but that to me like that is the that is the concerning aspect of this because I mean whether it's 5% of total beef processing capacity that's shut down or 7% of pork or whatever where have you um there's poultry plants also shut down. The problem so obviously you have one problem in terms of quantity available to consumers and at what price. So we've got that issue, right? Does this increase um, prices on those products? However, that being said, um, coming into this pandemic, really cold storage facilities were about as full as they've been over the past few years. Um, and so there's there's a lot of frozen product in the U.S. Um, that we're going to have access to. So um, I don't I don't think you know total of access or availability is any sort of an issue. The real concern to me is on the implications further upstream. So if I'm if I'm a feed yard and I have twenty thousand head of cattle um, on feed that I've been planning to send to that JBS plant in Greeley, um, the first week of May and, or let's say the last week of May, uh, or April, get my dates right here. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to be able to do that. Well, that means that I can't, you know, I, a, I'm going to have to hold those cattle over for longer. So that's going to increase my costs on those. B, if I don't have cattle leaving, I can't bring in new cattle. So then how does that impact then the feeder cattle market? and so on. Um, you know, and I'm hearing, especially like on the pork side, we've got where the entire industry has been gearing, um, diets and, and, and swine nutrition around efficiency and how do we put on as much weight in as few days as possible for the last decades we've focused on that and we've gotten really good at it. All of a sudden the swine industry is saying, Whoa, 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 what do we, what can we pull out of the diets in order to slow down the rate of growth um, under the concern and just the uncertainty of um, what type of capacity, processing capacity the plants are going to have when those pigs are ready to go to market. Um, and again, just the issue of the longer we have to hold those animals past the point when they were market ready, um, you know, the more costs that we have built up into them um, or added up into them, 
and obviously much more of an issue for independent farmers on the swine side than those that are contract growers for some of the major companies. So lasting implications of what does that do to just the structure of the industry and the percent of producers that are independent versus non, um, you know, similar issue on the dairy side, right. Of dairy industry wasn't super stable coming into this. And now all of a sudden it's gotten even worse. And so if we start to liquidate some of the dairy herd, now we're trying to send more cattle to market. So then what does that do to cattle prices? And, you know, it's, it's just all the onion peels back and it's not very pretty when you start to think about it. So hopefully, um, you know, hopefully these are short-term impacts and hopefully the Greeley plant will reopen in two weeks and there won't be more shutdowns. Um, but obviously, obviously it just remains to be seen for all of us. Um, you know, I think the pork producers today asked USDA for a billion dollars in aid, um, specifically around buying some pork products. Uh, you know, in pork, you see bellies were trading at about 95 cents a pound about a month ago. And last week they were trading at 45 cents a pound. So just huge shifts in markets. Um, and, you know, again, those ripple effects that just ripple all the way up the supply chain. To me, that's the that's the concerning question is how do we get through this pandemic with, um, with as many farmers as possible staying in business? Yeah, that's, I mean, you just laid it out perfectly right there. Um, the ripple effect through, through the livestock industries. Um, and I was just thinking, you start talking about feed and pulling what kind of ingredients out of which diets and rations that's going to ripple back even to crop farmers too. So I mean, everybody in the industry is affected in the, by this some way, shape, or form. And I think this is a prime example. <clears throat> Catherine and I brought up, I think, in one of our really early episodes about us as agriculture all standing together, even though we disagree on things, moving through this together, because this is a prime example of how we're all integrated and how we're all affected by one pandemic or one thing. And we're, we're all in this together, and we've got to figure out how to ride these waves together. Yeah. It's interesting so, though, when you look at, you know, oftentimes uh, from a feed perspective and a, a meat industry perspective, those two segments can be misaligned, right? High feed, high feed prices are bad for farmers and, and vice versa. <laughs> and what I'm hearing from a lot of, a lot of folks right now is, Hey, at least corn prices are low. At least corn prices are low. That's our saving grace. Um, but then if you look at the corn space mm-hmm. and you've got, ethanol plants that are shutting down because oil is at $20 a barrel. I mean, yeah, it's not, it just seems gets, like it's, when it's good for one side of the industry, it's not good for the other side of the industry. And that's a lot of, a lot of tension is created around that um, just within our own industry. And again, we talked about that in earlier episodes, some of our very, very first episodes about how we're really good at fighting with each other. <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> So where do we go from here, though? Like, we're talking about the doomsday or the situation we're currently in, unfortunately, and all the implications it has. Um, But where do you see this going? How long do you see it lasting, I guess? And and how can we start clawing our way out of this situation? Oh, if I had an answer to that question, I... (laughs) I don't know what I'd be doing, but I would be doing something. Um, You know, I I mean... like I say, I, I, I'm trying to just focus on the best case situation, right? So the best case situation is that, you know, we're 
Um, we really are flattening the curve as we speak so that in the next two to four weeks, um, you know, we come up with a plan of what does it look like to start, um, start reopening the economy a bit. Um, I mean, the, from a plant perspective, um, hopefully we're going to get some processes in place. Um, what, you know, whether that means running half shifts so that people can be further apart from each other or whatever that looks like, but wrapping our arms around what kind of procedures do we need in place to make sure that we can keep our plants open and have access to labor. Um, you know, that's, that's obviously a really critical step in this. And then the other big piece from a clawing our way back standpoint is yet to be seen of what happens from a macro perspective in terms of unemployment, um, in, in terms of restaurants, how many restaurants are going to be opening back up when we actually open back up, how many people are actually going to be eating in those restaurants. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of this situation of there's the the supply side of opening the economy back up, but then there's the demand side of do people want to eat in restaurants and um, do people have enough cash to pay for a steak or are they going to instead opt for chicken or instead of having enough cash for chicken, they're going to opt for eggs as their protein source. Um, and I think that all of that is, uh, I mean, I, I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but my guess is it's not going to be an overnight situation. So um, to me, it seems like best cases, you know, we're, we're back to some sort of um, steady state by the end of the year. Um, would, would kind of be my optimistic guess. Yeah. And as for, you know, big shifts in the supply chain and, and buying habits and those sorts of things, do you think to wrap up, do you think that that's, um, that those shifts are going to stay? We're going to continue to see shifting consumer behaviors. Are we going to go back to the way it was before, or is this a whole new paradigm for us? Yeah. Uh, I love this question. I love debating this question with, uh, with different folks. So I have a couple of hypotheses. I mean, one, one is that I think a lot of people are going to do more cooking from home because much like employers that had never allowed people to work remotely have suddenly figured out, oh, it's possible to work productively remotely. Um, and so that's going to impact them. I think for a lot of consumers that maybe weren't, um, uh, that into cooking at home have now been forced to. And so I, I, my personal hypothesis is just that that's going to be a, um, more food will be consumed from home, um, than, than previously. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't anticipate that at least in the short run that we're going to go back to the similar levels of retail and food service demand split. The other, the other trend that I'm really bullish about that I actually had started writing about this. So I have a blog, primefuture.co, and I had started writing about a month ago about some of these trends, specifically around D2C, direct-to-consumer models, and some hypotheses I have about what, that, what those models mean for the animal protein space and specifically for the packers. Um, what I'll say is that I think that just gets accelerated by about a kabillion, you know, percentage points. Um, I've, I've seen the, seen different numbers quoted about the percentage of people who had never ordered food online before the pandemic that now have, um, that now say, I may not do this all the time, but I'll do this sometimes. Um, you know, I, so there's, so there's that a, we have more people getting comfortable ordering online and then be more people concerned about going back to that, you know, the visual of meat shell, the meat case being empty that 
most of us in our lifetimes as millennials have never, we've never seen anything like that. Of course, the shelves have always been full unless it was like the day before a hurricane in Florida. I mean, right. (laughs) And we only saw it on TV too, really like exactly, exactly. Nothing on this scale or consistently for two weeks. Right. Um, so I think that my personal hypothesis with that is that there's going to be, um, increased focus on, okay, what's a source of protein that I can secure for my family? Um, Oh, by the way, let's go ahead and add in some convenience factors, whether that's subscription model or delivered straight to my house or whatever that looks like. Um, and so I think that potentially packers benefit from that, but I think local farmers benefit from that. Um, you know, I've seen several, uh, farmers in it, local to my area that have put on Facebook, you know, Hey, we've got, um, some freezer beef available and just boom, they're, they're going out. They've got selling out all of their inventory and they've got a list of folks on their waiting list. Um, so I'm, I'm really bullish about what those D to C models can mean for the protein space, for farmers and for packers. Uh, and I think that's one thing that just gets significantly accelerated from this, uh, COVID-19 situation. Which is really, really exciting. You know, people always talk about, they want to support their local farmers and, and diversification for, for some, for some people as well. That will be a really great way to accomplish both of those things. And get get some new product into freezers that people aren't, aren't used to getting, you know, they can get quarter or half of beef rather than just going to the grocery store and getting their hamburger, their New York strips. They can start trying some new things, which is good for us in the beef industry. I think so. Yeah. Really exciting. Yeah. If we can make it happen. I mean, that's kind of the, that's the big trick with these models is, can you get consumers to cook cuts and, and be happy buying cuts that they are not as familiar with, or are you just going to be shipping them the, the items that they want? So to me, like that's some of that business model um, discovery that's to be done that we just don't know yet what's going to happen. But, uh, but it, I agree. It could be really interesting. We just want to keep this conversation going. And I think we need to pour, pour a cold beer or a glass of wine and keep going. But in interest of time and our listeners, um, we want to thank you for coming on this week. It's been a pleasure, but we're going to try something new with our guests and do a quick fire questions just to kind of end on a fun note. So we'll read off a question and you just answer it. So what's your favorite type of cheese? Ooh, Midnight Moon, Cypress Grove Creamery. Cypress Grove. Purchased <laughs> at Whole Foods. It's magic. Or... If I can have a second favorite, it's this tiny little creamery that's been around since like 1924 in Sonoma, California. And you like walk in and they do a cheese tasting for you. Every kind of cheese that they sell is fabulous. And I can't remember the name of the creamery off the top of my head, or I would give them like the most massive shout out right now. But (laughs) there you have it. My two favorites. Oh, awesome. Love it. Uh, What's your favorite kind of beef? Ooh, um... You know what? I I just moved from California back to Arizona, and having spent enough time in California, uh, tri tip. I love me some yes. tri tip <laughs> or brisket. You know, that's my Texas coming out there. A, a well done brisket is just delicious. Yes. Both solid choices, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, with all your traveling and places you've lived, what's your favorite agriculture region in the U.S.? <sighs> that's a hard question. So. I'm partial to Cochise County, Arizona, um, where I grew up. But uh, if I were to say like agricultural region, I would say the Central Valley of California. I mean, it's it's just 
incredible, the diversity, um, every single high value, uh, crop that you can imagine you're going to find there. It's, it's, I, I love just to drive through the central Valley of California and, and see all the different, uh, commodities that are grown there. Yeah. That's an experience like no other. <laughs> that's right. Um, a couple more. What's your favorite go-to fun ag fact? Feeling a lot of pressure on this one. <laughs> um, I don't know that I have a favorite go. Oh, okay. I'll just go here because most people don't know that um, chili peppers, uh, same varieties turn from green to red. So it's really the color is just a sign of the maturity. Hey, I didn't know that. Neither so I <laughs> Merry Christmas. And then because we like to have a good laugh, what is your favorite pun or agriculture corny joke? Oh my goodness. You know what? I don't know that I have a favorite agriculture corny joke, but I have some nieces that are about six, seven and eight that love, uh, love some punny jokes. So I may have to get one from them for you next time. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on and where can they find you? Yeah. So, um, Jeanette Barnard on LinkedIn or primefuture.co is, um, uh, my blog that I mentioned and then rockroadconsulting.com. That's the, uh, the name of the firm that I'm with now. So any of those are, are great options or on Twitter, Jeanette Joy B. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll be sure to tag you in, um, the episode post and that'll help our listeners connect with you as well. So, yeah. So, um, Jeanette, once again, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank we, you guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we had a great time and we would love to have you back sometime. Um, listeners, after you finish listening to this episode, we are still running our hashtag donate dairy campaign, um, which is promoted by Millennial Act to support uh, dairy farmers right now who are having to dump milk like we mentioned last week. So if you go to our pages on Facebook and Instagram, you can find all the details. Um, but the most important thing is to donate dairy to your local food bank in any form that you can and Valen and I will match it for our local food bank. Until next week, it's Millennial Ag. Thank you.